Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 13. Last week, I ended the episode covering the place known as Napath Dor, more frequently shortened to simply Dor. This city was part of the alliance of northern Canaanite kingdoms that united against Israel. In its case, it's believed the city was found on the slopes of Mount Carmel, which is where I'll begin this episode. And with that, let's get started. Mount Carmel, as it's known in Hebrew, roughly translates to the word vineyard, giving away much of what's grown there, meaning grapes. It could also mean garden or orchard. Either way, it regards the production of produce. On its slopes are groves of trees such as oak, olive, and pine. Also, caves, which seem really common in the area. I've been hiking in the mountains for decades and can only think of a single cave I've ever run across, and I'm not even sure it was natural. Nearly every book of the Bible I've covered so far has a mention of a cave. More on those caves, at least the ones on Carmel, in a minute. The mountain is also known by the name Mount Mar Elias in Arabic. It's essentially on the coast, just south of the modern Israeli city of Haifa, the third largest city in the modern country. This coastal region is in the transition zone from the somewhat wet Mediterranean climate to the interior dry steppe. Nepath Dor was on the slightly rainier coastal western side of the mountain, hence why it tended to be more associated with agriculture. Depending on who was writing about it, and when, the name may have referred to the entire mountain range, which ran 24 miles, 39 kilometers, or it could have referred to a much shorter portion of the range, typically the northern part. I'm going to go with this smaller portion, as it's more concise. The part of the mountain range near Napath Dor is nearly 5 miles long, up to 8 kilometers. Like I mentioned last week, at its highest point, it's about 1,800 feet, 546 meters, above the nearby sea level. To the northeast is the Jezreel Valley, where many of the Canaanite battles against the newly arrived Israelites would be fought. And the importance of Mount Carmel to the Jezreel Valley is worth pointing out. The mountain, or mountain range, your pick separated the interior valley from the coastal region, providing a natural barrier for the Israelites from where they would initially settle in the Philistines who tended to occupy the coastal region. In the Old Testament, the book of Amos implies that the summit of the mountain was sometimes viewed as a place to escape from God. In a story I've mentioned a couple of times, it was at Mount Carmel that Elisha traveled to, after cursing a group of young men because they had mocked his bald head. The boys, our young men, were subsequently attacked by bears. In 1 Kings, Elijah challenged King Ahab over his incorporation of Canaanite deities into Israel. From the text, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah answered, 
I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now have all Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel, with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. After this, Elijah challenged the Canaanite priest to summon their Baal. When they did, nothing happened. Elijah cried out to God, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. All of this at Mount Carmel. I'll have more on this story in a few minutes. In 1 Samuel, in an incident shortly after the future King David spared the current King Saul's life, David has a run-in with a wealthy man named Nabal who lived at Carmel. There's much to the story, which I'll get to when I cover the book of Samuel. For now, just know that Nabal ends up dead, and David takes his wife, a woman named Abigail, as his own wife. And it was due to Abigail being from Carmel that led to most of the mentions of the place in the text of the Old Testament. Beyond that, Carmel is also mentioned in 1 Samuel 15 in a passage about how bad of a king Saul had become. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and Samuel was told, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself and on returning he passed on down to Gilgal. This is one of the passages that leads scholars to believe the mountain was a place where Israelites tried to escape God. People like Saul, who was setting up a monument for himself. And that's it for the biblical account. Like most of the better-known places in the region, Mount Carmel has been the place of excavations for the past 100 or so years. In this case, the digs have focused on the numerous caves, as well as the man-built and natural rock shelters, as you would expect on such a mountain. During these excavations, human remains from as far back as Neanderthals and early modern human remains have been recovered, meaning it far predated the era of Abraham and the future arrival of the post-Exodus Israelites. Among these was a skeleton of a Neanderthal female, since then dubbed Taban I, so named because the cave where she was found is named Taban. This find is generally regarded as one of the most important human fossils ever found. And remember, I'm not advocating that this is either true or not, just simply reporting what others think. You can form your own opinions. The cave, in its lowest areas, which is thought to be the oldest part, contains large amounts of sea sand, along with traces of pollen. Both of these thought to indicate a relatively warm climate at the time. Expanding on this a bit, this is the period when the planet, in general, was slowly emerging from an ice age, and the lower portions of glaciers around the globe were melting, leading to rising sea levels. When this happened, 
the coast of the Mediterranean moved closer to the mountain, all of this making the coastal plain to the west of Carmel somewhat narrower than it is today. It would have also led to more precipitation, which would then lead to more vegetation, and the pollen. Do note that this theory requires many steps, and in general, the more steps required to make sense of something, the more fallible the theory. Back in the very ancient cave of Tabun, flint and limestone hand axes have been found which is par for the course, considering this was way back in the Stone Age. These axes were used to kill, then butcher small and large animals. So far, not surprising. What they killed, though, did contain a few unexpected glimpses into how different the climate was then and there. Expected beasts such as gazelle and wild cattle. And this was well before cows were domesticated which is thought to have occurred sometime around 11 to 10,000 BC, many millenniums later. I actually looked up what a period of 10,000 years is called, something I'd never really given any thought to, and there is a word for it, actually two. You can call the period either a decim millennium or a miriam annum. Considering I'm closing in on one million words written for the podcast, and, as far as I remember, that's the first time that's come up, and both are a bit awkward, that will likely be the only time I mention it. But if it does come up, I'm going with decim millennium. Back to the prey. The surprising kills were hippopotami and rhinoceroses. Today, both hippos and rhinos are found thousands of miles away in central and southern Africa. To be clear, much of the natural range contraction of both is due to human intervention, such as overhunting and poaching, but an equal portion can be attributed to an ever-changing climate that has shifted where these two beasts naturally thrive. Back in the cave, the stone tools were also used to dig up plants, presumably for their roots. So, we've covered both the hunting and the gathering. As you would suspect, over time, the tools were improved upon. In this case, the hand axes became smaller and better shaped for their intended purposes. Scrapers were also developed. These were made from relatively thick flint and likely used to scrape meat from the bones of successful kills. They would have also been used to separate animal skin from flesh to make clothing and other things like tents and blankets. There was also what's been described as a cobble, a stone tool made for abrading surfaces, and that's the lower levels of the cave. In its upper levels, the sea sand is replaced by clay and silt, and in this case, this is thought to indicate colder, more humid weather theorized to be the result of a cooling worldwide climate, which caused the reformation of glaciers, and therefore a retreating sea level. As you would suspect, this led to a larger coastal plain to the west of the mountain. This plain was then home to what became dense forest and wet swamps. And tool manufacture progressed with thin varieties and more specialization, including stone tools for sawing 
which surely came in handy in those dense forests. Overall, over 2,000 stone tools have been recovered from the cave, a dense find indeed. And there's something else. Layer upon layer of fallow deer bones. What's equally as interesting as the number of bones is where they are located. In this case, underneath a natural chimney to the cave, a vertical shaft that may have served as a natural trap. The thinking is that the cave dwellers may have herded deer towards this hole in the ground, into which they fell, with the fall resulting in their quick death. At the bottom of the hole, others were waiting to butcher the prey. Not a bad use for a natural geologic feature when you're constantly living on the edge of starvation. All total, there have been four caves explored on the mountain, and they all, to a lesser or greater extent, tell the same tale. And that's the cave, and gets me back to the exterior of the mountain. Other excavations in the area have yielded finds that span tens of thousands of years, from the Stone Age cave dwellers to well into the agricultural revolution when the locals settled down and built villages that evolved into cities, like Napath Dor. In this area, rock shelters have been found along with later cities. Among the later finds are ancient wine and oil presses, obviously, I guess, indicative of a developed, or at least a developing, agriculturally-based society. Archaeological evidence seems to indicate that the ancient Canaanites considered the mountain to be a sacred place. This, though, is a general belief about the Canaanites and many of the mountains found in their territory. In that society, deities were generally assumed to live in a higher place than mere humans, and higher was quite literal, in that case referring to elevation. So, living on mountaintops, like the not-so-high Mount Carmel. This may be the same place referred to in the annals of Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III, who ruled in the 15th century BC, and these records indicate that a holy headland was in the Canaanite territory controlled by Egypt at the time. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this time in 1 Kings, there had been an altar to God on the mountain but by the reign of King Ahab, so in the early 9th century BC, it had fallen into disrepair. The prophet Elijah would build a new one. For this, and other reasons, the mountain is commonly associated with Elijah, and not only in Judaism, and therefore Christianity, but also in Islam, to the point that he is thought to have lived for a period of time in one of the mountain's caves. That's why one of the Arabic names for the mountain is Jabar Mar Elizes, which literally translates as the Mountain of Saint Elias, their name for the prophet. I've already covered the backstory of Elijah challenging the Canaanite priest to present miracles performed by Baal, but there's more to this story. The background of the story is that during the rule of Ahab and his association with the Phoenicians, and therefore the association with their supreme, but not sole, deity Baal. They also worshipped Astarte and Melkart, among many others. 
so it goes with polytheism. And, as if that wasn't confusing enough, Baal could be one and the same as the others. And in the case of the events that unfolded at Mount Carmel, this Baal may have also been Melkart, both at the same time. According to chapter 18 of this book of Kings, the contest was to see which deity could light a sacrifice by fire. After the prophets of Baal have failed to summon him, Elijah had water poured upon his sacrifice to saturate the altar, and he increased. He then prayed, and just like that, fire fell from the sky and consumed the sacrifice, along with the wood, stones, soil, and even the water. At the end of the story, Elijah announces the end through a three-year-long drought, which had previously been sent as divine punishment for Israel's idolatry. The text does not tell us where on the mountain any of this occurred. Islam actually names a place, with the name translating to the burning. That makes sense, though that name was assigned well after the event. There's another place that could be the location. This one is close to the Kishon River, and since water flows and accumulates downhill, this places it at the base of the mountain. At this site, and the reason it's considered a possibility, is a flat area shaped roughly like an amphitheater. This would have afforded everyone present for the showdown a clear view of the events. But that's not the only reason it may have been there. There's also a natural spring where Elijah could have drawn the water that he saturated the sacrifice with. This place is high enough that the sea can be seen, which is where the weather in the region typically rolls in from. This would have allowed the prophet to see the approaching rainstorm breaking the drought. Though, the text does tell us that after the showdown, he climbed to the top of Mount Carmel. After this, and according to the text, there he bowed himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. Then he said, Go again seven times. At the seventh time he said, Look, a cloud no bigger than a person's hand is rising out of the sea. Then he said, Go say to Ahab, Harness your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. There was a heavy rain. Ahab rode off and went to Jezreel. But the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He girded up his loins and ran in front of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Just in case you didn't notice, and it slipped by, Elijah, who was on foot, outran the king who was in a horse-drawn chariot, escaping the approaching, drought-breaking storm. Nearby Mount Carmel, in a very recent addition, meaning in the latter half of the 19th century, is a monastery named The Burning. There is an altar in the monastery which is claimed to be that which Elijah built in God's honor, but the altar in the monastery is not made from locally sourced limestone, so the likelihood is low. Backing up to the history, 
According to the 1st century AD Greek historian Strabo, in his time, Mount Carmel continued to be a place of refuge. And what this means is that it likely served the same function when Christ was walking in the region. How significant is this? Well, that's debatable. The mountain is only 15 miles, 24 kilometers from Nazareth. So, it was surely known to Jesus, but it was never mentioned. A little later, Josephus would write that people referred to as the Ossenes, who were from Galilee, specifically Nazareth. They lived on the mountain. These people are believed by some to be the source of the Dead Sea Scrolls. About the same time as Josephus, Roman historian Tacitus wrote of an oracle on the mountain and even claimed that Roman Emperor Vespasian visited the soothsayer. Tacitus also claimed that an altar was on the peak, writing that the altar had no image of any deity on it and no nearby temple. In my mind, this sounds like the one Elijah may have built centuries earlier. The 4th century Arab-Greek philosopher Iamblichus described the mountain as being particularly sacred, claiming that it was the most holy of all mountains, with access forbidden to many. In the 13th century, and during the Crusades, a Catholic religious order was founded on the mountain at what they claimed was the location of the cave where Elijah hid. They named their group for that location, becoming known as the Carmelites. Their tradition suggests that a group of Jewish hermit priests had lived at the site from the time of Elijah until the Carmelites were founded there, the whole time without any interruption. But the actual evidence of this is rather scant. A Carmelite monastery was founded at the site shortly after the order itself was created. The Carmelite order grew to become one of the largest Catholic religious orders worldwide, though the monastery at Carmel has had a less successful history. During the Crusades, the monastery often changed hands, frequently being converted into a mosque, so it went for most all religious buildings in that place and period. In 1799, none other than Napoleon had the building converted into a hospital, but it wasn't to last, as in 1821, the structure was destroyed by the Ottomans. Later, the Carmelites constructed a new monastery directly over a nearby cave. The cave, which is now the crypt of the monastic church, is termed Elijah's Grotto by the Carmelite friars who run the church. As for the greater Carmelite order, after the Europeans were driven from the region by the Islamists, the group relocated to Europe, eventually establishing satellite locations throughout that continent. Today, there remain just over 2,000 Carmelites, with 1,300 of that number being priests. This Roman Catholic religious order is currently headquartered in Rome. The mountain also holds religious significance for Islam and the Baha'i faith, like many places in the region do. But both of these are a bit out of scope for this podcast. Back on the mountain, it obviously lasted through all of the ensuing periods, the Romans, Muslims, and Ottomans, which gets me all the way to the 20th century and World War I. 
in this conflict, what's become known as the Battle of Magido was fought at the head of a pass through the Carmel Ridge, which overlooks the Jezreel Valley to its north. British General Allenby led his nearly 70,000 troops in a battle that is now known to be the turning point for the Allies against the Ottoman Empire. The Allies would encircle the 35,000 Ottomans who had taken positions in the Judean hills, and that encirclement led to the surrender and capture of much of the Ottoman military. And that's it for Mount Carmel. I have a few minutes left, which gives me enough time to cover another place, Mizpah. This is a region in Gilead, which places it at the foot of Mount Hermon. Joshua mentions the place in chapter 11, naming it as the Valley of Mizpah. Some posit it was held at the time by the Hivites. As for the naming, it does yield a clue about the place, as the name translates to the phrase, the Watchtower. And while I'm on the place, there are several, potentially other places with the name in the Old Testament. One was the place where Laban overtook Jacob on his return to Canaan. This may have been the same place where Jephthah, a judge, lived. So, these three may have been the same place. There were other places with the name mentioned later in the Old Testament, one in Moab and another in Judah, but these are probably not the same place as the one in Joshua. So, I'll get to those when I get to that part of the text. As for this Mizpah, there's really not much known about it. There is something I noticed but could find no explanation for. In the New Revised Standard, it's spelled two different ways, with both being found in Joshua 11, with an A when it's called the Land of Mizpah, and one with an E when it's called the Valley of Mizpah. In the other two translations I use, the King James and NIV, in both cases, it's spelled the same. What does that mean? I don't really have anything conclusive to offer, but was likely just a choice of the various translators. It does, though, provide me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll pick up with the waters of Merim. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.